0: Honored to have with us Bishop Philip Mount Stephen. Because I do actually know our bishop and know him on first hand level, I'm going to attempt to give him a very honoring and appropriate introduction, but you'll have to forgive me if I smile quite a bit. Because if you know Bishop Philip Mount Stephen, you know that he is a great joy and a tremendous gift, not just to our county, but to the church at large in this country. And I'm just going to give a brief personal introduction. I have a sister who lives in the Middle East, who ministers to and was recently imprisoned for her work in Jordan, sharing the gospel. And so I have a particular attentiveness to the importance of the persecuted church at large, and I'm deeply grateful on a personal and on a national level for our bishop's work. And so, um, it's just with great pride and joy that I introduce him today, and I'm going to pray for him and then hand over. We're grateful for you. We thank God for your leadership in our county. Jesus, we thank you that your heart is tender towards sinners and sufferers. We pray that as our bishop today shares with us about the church in other places and the church in our own country, that we would be attentive to what your spirit would have to say to us today. We pray that you would anoint his words, we pray that the attitude of our hearts and the position of our minds would be to listen with the ear of an active listener. We pray that if you would call us to take action in any way following this session, even if particularly in prayer, that we would be willing to say yes to all that you call us to. We thank you for our bishop and his leadership. We honor him today. And we pray that you would anoint him by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. Amen. Thank you, Sarah, very much indeed. Um, I want to say a couple of things about Creation Fest. Um, one is that I am slightly disappointed. Um, I thought I was coming here to a festival. Uh, I find no mud, and and the toilets are quite acceptable. I I even put on my wellies. Entirely pointless exercise. So um, exactly. So. That's my complaint about Creation Fest. I also just want to return the compliment and say that Sarah Yardley is a tremendous gift to us here uh, in Cornwall. She is a woman with a, a pin-sharp focus on Christ and the most incredibly broad, embracing sympathies. And that is a great gift to us, Sarah, and we thank God for you. Now, what, I, what I'm going to do, that, this, not too much, because it'll go to a head. Um, what, what I'm going to do this afternoon is. Um, is speak for half an hour, give or take an hour or so, um, and, uh, and then I hope we'll have some time for some, for some questions, okay? And I'm gonna talk about this issue of persecution kind of on a personal level uh, and, and on, a, on a broader perspective uh, as well. So let me start with the kind of the personal side of it and kind of how I got into this really. Uh, I had a, an unusual start to my Christmas in 2018, when I was uh, rung up by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, on Christmas Eve. Not as I'd hoped to wish me a happy Christmas. Instead, he asked me if I would be willing to lead a review of the way that the UK Foreign Office, the FCO, had addressed, or maybe hadn't addressed, the persecution of Christians worldwide. And it became clear that this was a request from the then Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. He was very moved by this, by this issue, and he was clearly concerned both about the human stories of those who were caught up in persecution, but also worried that his department just wasn't doing enough about it. Now, to be honest, that was terrible timing for me because I hadn't even started in Truro's. I hadn't started my, you know, my day job, as it were, but it is a really important issue. So I said yes. Now, I also want to say straight away that even though this was terrible timing for me, it became clear very quickly that this was God's timing and that God was in this in a big way. And I absolutely want to give our God the praise and the glory for the very significant things that have happened as a result of that piece of work. But why do I say that God was at the heart of it? Well, first, the request from Jeremy Hunt Came straight out of a meeting that he'd attended with the Archbishop that was organized by the charity Open Doors, which is one of the leading charities um, working for the persecuted church worldwide. And it turns out that Jeremy Hunt was willing to do that, both because he's a Christian himself, and because years before he'd read the book God Smuggler, written by Open Doors founder, Brother Andrew, and he'd been profoundly impressed by it. So this wasn't accidental that he stumbled across this issue. This had been something that he'd lived with um, for a very long time. Secondly, it was just as if a small window opened up to get this work through. Jeremy Hunt wasn't Foreign Secretary for that long, but he made this a priority in that time. And we raced against the clock to get the work finished. And the clock was ticking because the Tory leadership campaign was coming to an end. Jeremy Hunt was up against Boris Johnson. We know how that um, uh, competition uh, turned out. And Jeremy Hunt moved on from being Foreign Secretary. But not before both he and the government had accepted the review's really far-reaching recommendations in full. So by the grace of God, we squeezed this really significant piece of work through that small window, just in time, before it shut. It was, it was the right time, it was God's time, the right people in the right place. Let me tell you a bit more about the people, let me tell you how the team came together. I used to minister in Paris in the Anglican Diocese in Europe, and someone else in the diocese at the same time, up in Brussels, was a man called David Fieldsend. And just about the time I moved to Truro, he retired from Brussels and he moved back to Cornwall. And he said to me, Philip, if there's anything that I can help you with when we both turn up in Cornwall, then let me know. And uh, what was it that he was doing in Brussels? Well, he was working on just this kind of issue and had loads of contacts. So again, the right person in the right place, with the right skills, at the right time. And, and it goes on. He recommended someone else called Rachel Varney, who was down in Cornwall. She'd worked in Parliament on public policy in the past. She'd been doing some maternity cover for the council down here, which had come to an end. So she was doing some supply teaching. So she too was free and available. Just when she was needed, she too joined the team. And you can add to that someone else called Charles Haw. David and Rachel knew him anyway. He was based in London. Someone else recommended that he join the team because he'd worked on just this kind of issue at the United Nations and in the UK. And he, too, was available, so he could run the London end of things. Now, I ask you this. What are the chances that three people, all Christians, who already knew about this subject, two of them based in Cornwall, would be free, willing, and available all at the same time. I'd say the chances of that would be pretty slim. And that's why I say that God was in this in a big way, so that I was practically handed my team on a plate. And without those people, this would have been just impossible. And I could go on. The recommendations of the review were just for the Foreign Office. But to my surprise and my delight, I didn't expect this. They were adopted by the government as a whole as one of the last things that happened before Theresa May resigned. Even then, I thought, well, that's going to be it. We'll hear no more about this. But no, a commitment to implement all 22 recommendations featured in the Tory Manifesto in late 2019, and that commitment was reiterated just a couple of months ago in the Global Britain paper that the government produced. People in Parliament, in both the Commons and the Lords, go on referencing the Truro Review as as a kind of touchstone. So I think you can now say that this issue is on the agenda politically in a way that it just wasn't before, and in a way that it would be really difficult to drop from that agenda. Now I am genuinely surprised and delighted by all that, but above all else I do want to say, to God be the glory. This was his work from start to finish, and everything that we as a team were able to do was thanks to a strong following wind of the Holy Spirit that truly filled our sails. And I was hugely aware of the many, many people who were praying for the work that we did, and I do believe that that made a very significant difference. And if you were one of those people who were praying, thank you very much. Do know what a difference your prayers made. Now, you might also ask, why was I asked to do this? Well, the fact is before coming to Truro, I used to lead an international mission agency, church mission society. So my knowledge of the global church was was okay. And one of the last trips I made for that job was to Nepal. Now for a few years, Nepal was wide open to the ministry of the gospel and the growth of the church there has been just astonishing. One of my friends there used to conduct ministry in prisons. He baptized many people Uh, in prison, all with the blessing of the authorities. But all of that now has changed completely. I visited his office in Kathmandu, and there was a map on the wall of all the churches that his, uh, his agency have planted across Nepal, and it is covered in dots. It's really impressive. But that map is above a desk, and it's not stuck on the wall, It's just hung on the wall. So if ever they were raided by the authorities, which was a real possibility, they could simply lift the map up off the wall, turn it round, and hide it behind the desk so no one would see it. Now, I went with my friend uh, to visit a project that he and his team are supporting down by the river in Kathmandu. And we met and we prayed with the young pastor who led the project down there. We prayed with him specifically because earlier that day they'd been visited by the police who asked him, what are you doing here? And ordered him to the police station the next day to give an account of himself and his activities. Well, the answer to the question, the answer to the question, what are you doing here, was simple. They were providing the community with clean water. They were supplying the children with kit for school. They'd set up a watertight well-lit building, unlike the shacks where people lived, a place where children could study and do all their homework in the dry. And yes, they were sharing the good news of Jesus. And for doing all of that, this young pastor had to report to the police and explain himself. My friend who organized the project and the church planting said to me, we had a small window of liberty for a few years and we took advantage of that. Now we've gone back to just how it was before, but it won't stop us doing what we're doing, but it will make it more risky. Now that is just one small example of the pressure and the persecution that the church can face uh, worldwide. And of course, the pressure and the persecution the church can face worldwide can be much more extreme than that. And of course, can lead to death as is sadly the case, for instance, at the moment in um, more than one part of Nigeria. But that personal experience was one that made a deep impression on me, and it set me up well for the work that I was later asked to do. Incidentally, I contacted my friend recently who'd been, you know, the brains behind that project, and I asked him what had happened to the pastor, and he replied, the church you visited is still there. The pastor was questioned by the police, Now the police authorities have allowed the church to meet, but yes, they create problems accusing him of converting people. And those kind of anti-conversion laws that are now in place in Nepal are an increasing problem worldwide, leading to increased persecution and pressure for Christians in many places. Anyway, my friend goes on to say, We're still serving there to support 50 kids who come every day for education and food. We also support them financially to pray for education support for 20 disadvantaged children. And then he says, please continue to pray for that ministry, which is very important. So I do want to say this. That is a really significant ministry. So please do pray for the persecuted church. Pray for people who are suffering persecution. But don't don't stop there. Pray for the ministry that those churches are exercising in sharing the good news uh, of Jesus. Lift our brothers and sisters worldwide uh, to the Lord to pray for their protection. Pray for the fruitfulness of their ministry um, uh, uh, as well, because it can be incredibly significant. But let's dig a little bit deeper into this and look at this in in a broader context and ask why was the review that I led needed? Over seven years ago, the Times published an editorial, and it was entitled, Spectators at the Carnage. And it began like this. Across the globe, in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa, Christians are being bullied, arrested, jailed, expelled, and executed. Christianity is, by most calculations, the most persecuted religion of modern times. Yet Western politicians, until now, have been reluctant to speak out in support of Christians in peril. Well, it took some years, but happily, Jeremy Hunt was willing to speak out, and uh, so we set the review up. In some ways, it seems as if the persecution of Christians has come out of a kind of clear blue sky. If you're old enough to remember this, in in the days of the Cold War, it was a real issue when Christians and churches, in some contexts, behind the the Iron Curtain in the Soviet bloc, experienced significant pressure. Post-1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall, however, everything seemed to sort of recede, except it's crept up on us by degrees over the last few years. And there are two things that are striking about its re-emergence. First, where once it really only seemed to be located behind the Iron Curtain or in communist countries, it is now sadly a truly Global phenomenon present in pretty much every continent, but it isn't a single global phenomenon, it has multiple triggers and drivers. And the second striking factor is that because the re emergence of Christian persecution has been gradual, because it hasn't had one single trigger or cause, it's been pretty much overlooked in the West. It's crept up on us unawares. And the Western response, or lack of response, has been certainly colored by a lot of ignorance about matters of faith, as well as some embarrassment about it. Before the review, you certainly got the impression that some politicians would really look anywhere else other than at this issue. Now, that is a real issue, but it's also a Western, it's a real problem, but it's also a Western problem. People who adopt that position, and there are plenty of people in the Foreign Office who did, still do I fear, people who adopt that position just fail to grasp how for the vast majority of the world's inhabitants, faith and religious belief is crucial to how they see themselves and to how they behave. For 84% of the world's population, faith and belief are not just a leisure pursuit as we see it in this country. And that, percentage, by the way, is not declining, as many Western people would like you to believe. It's actually growing. For 84% of the world's population, faith and belief are not just a leisure pursuit as we tend to see it in this country. It's fundamental to how, we, how people see themselves, both individuals and as communities. If you're a Christian, you know that you can't take your faith off as if it was some kind of an outer piece of clothing. It's fundamental to who you are. And so it is for most people in the world today, even though Western governments don't often tend to see it like that and tend to turn a blind eye to it. And Christian persecution today, Christian persecution today is a real issue and a real problem. By by good calculations, 80% of the discrimination and persecution the people of faith in the world today experience is directed towards Christians, 80%. Now, I think there are many, many reasons for that. But here's one that I think is really important. I think we need to remember that the Christian faith has always been subversive. It's always been subversive. The very earliest Christian creed is made up of just three words. Those three words, Jesus is Lord. And as Christians, we say that very easily, forgetting just what a punch those three words pack. Jesus is Lord. In fact, they explain why, from the very earliest days, the Christian faith attracted persecution. Because you see, to say Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar, the Roman emperor, was not Lord. But that is what he claimed. Caesar is Lord. That's what you were supposed to say as a citizen of the Roman emperor, but Christians would not say that. They would only say, Jesus is Lord. To make Jesus your ultimate authority in the Roman empire was to court trouble. And that's why as the church grew in the Roman empire, Christians were increasingly persecuted because Caesar couldn't stand the competition. And one of the reasons that you find Christians and other faith groups persecuted today is that there are plenty of world leaders today who lead authoritarian, repressive regimes, today's Caesars, if you like, and they will not stand for any dissent, and they brook no rivals. That's why, for instance, Chinese leaders don't like seeing the sign of the cross. That's why in a Chinese church they insist that it's the president's picture that is put up uh, on the wall, because leaders like that know instinctively which claim Jesus, what claim Jesus, uh, Christians make for Jesus. He is our ultimate authority, and no one else. Now, as I said, I was asked to look at how the Foreign Office had responded to the persecution of Christians. Nonetheless, if you if you go online, ChristianPersecutionReview.org, if you look at our recommendations you'll see that there's a real emphasis there on guaranteeing freedom of religion or belief for everyone and not just for Christians. So so why is that, you might ask? Well, two reasons, really. One, because to argue for special pleading for Christians over other people would, I think, actually, ironically, perhaps, be deeply unchristian. Jesus teaches us that our neighbors are not just those near us and, and like us, but those who are different from us and distant to us. But also, secondly, to argue for special pleading of Christians would actually, ironically, expose Christians, persecuted Christians, to even greater risk by isolating them and unintentionally portraying them as stooges of the West. Those people these Western governments favor, that would actually make their context and their situation even riskier. So I believe we have a moral as well as a kind of you know, practical duty to seek freedom of religion or belief for everyone without fear or favor, and I think there are really good reasons for doing that. So I'm, I am unequivocally and unashamedly concerned with rights for everybody, for the right to freedom of religion or belief, and that includes the right actually not to believe. So I want to acknowledge the significant persecution that other communities have suffered and still suffer as well. So the Rohingya community in Myanmar have suffered terribly, as have the Yazidis in Iraq. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community have been persecuted since their very beginning. It's right to recognize the suffering of Christians in India and China, and that's grown alarmingly over recent years. But it would be very wrong to ignore the persecution of Muslim communities in those countries, including the Uyghur Muslims who have suffered appallingly through the genocidal activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In many places in the world today, it's certainly not safe to admit that you're an atheist, and I think it should be safe to do that. Jehovah's Witnesses have experienced severe persecution historically, and they're not free of it today either. And of course, Christians have also historically not just been persecuted. Shamefully, we've been the persecutors of others. I think with shame, we should think with shame, of the Crusades, of the Spanish Inquisition, of the pogroms in Eastern Europe, but this isn't just an historical phenomenon. Responsibility for the dreadful massacre of 8,373, think about that number, 8,373 Bosniak men and boys in Srebrenica in July 1995, that has to be laid squarely at the feet of those who called themselves Christians. We might say, well, they weren't real Christians, were they? You try telling them that. So to sum up, I wanted to, to be able to make sure that the work of this review would be acceptable to a mainly secular audience, so it would actually make a difference. But I also wanted to make sure that what we were doing was all of a piece with my own Christian faith, indeed that it was the values of the Christian faith that would drive the whole thing. So yes, I wanted to be deeply Christian and to make a difference in a secular environment, and I think by the grace of God, that's what we managed to do. So what exactly was it that we found? Well, at one point in the review, I say that I believe that there are two basic threats to human flourishing and harmonious communities in the world today. One of them is climate change, and the other is the systematic denial of freedom of religion or belief in different places and in many different ways globally. Now, that was not a conviction I had when the review's work began, but it grew on me as the work progressed. Indeed, I was shocked, genuinely shocked, by the scale, the scope and the severity of this phenomenon. Now I think we've begun, perhaps not quickly enough, but we've begun to recognise the importance of addressing the first of that pair in climate change, but it's high time now that we recognise the importance of addressing the second. But why do I think it's so important? Well, if you've never read George Orwell's 1984, I suggest you do. Pop into Waterstones or some other independent bookshop. Don't fund billionaires' voyages to the moon. Go into a good bookshop, buy 1984, and read it if you never have done. No other book, I think, throws such a spotlight on repression than does 1984. And the most chilling aspect of it, I think, is the existence of the thought police and the concept of thought crime. In other words, you could be arrested in George Orwell's world that he created simply for thinking the wrong thing. Now, why do I think that's the most chilling aspect of the book? It's chilling because to be denied the liberty to think what you want to think, to believe what you want to believe, including the right not to believe, that is the most fundamental denial of your human rights. It's the most fundamentally constraining and restricting thing that can happen to you. Because if you're not free to think or believe in the way that you want, how can you organize and order the rest of your life in the way that you might want? So I don't believe that freedom of religion or belief is just one right amongst many. Actually, so many other rights and freedoms depend upon it. And yet, what we found, what we find, is that in so many places, around the world today we see this right questioned and compromised and threatened and denied. So we do need to ask why is the violation of freedom of religion or belief so widespread? Why are Christians affected by this on pretty much every continent? What is going on? What is driving this? As I said before, this is a global phenomenon with multiple drivers even though there are some people who think quite wrongly that this is just about Islam. Believe me, it really isn't. If you think it's just about Islam, then you're going to be ignoring shed loads of other really serious persecution um, around the world. But if you lift the stone of persecution and look underneath, what is it that you find? Well, in, conce- in contexts like Central America, where government is weak, you find gang warfare on an industrial scale that is driven by drug crime. The most dangerous place in the world to be a priest or pastor is Mexico. Drug gangs try to use communities for their own ends and often the only person standing literally in the firing line is the local priest or pastor. In many places in the world today, You find authoritarian, totalitarian regimes that are intolerant both of dissent and of minorities. China's maybe the most obvious example of that, but it's not the only one. In other places, you find aggressive militant nationalism that insists on uniformity. So there are many politicians in India today who say that to be Indian is to be Hindu, and if you're Christian or Muslim, you're not properly Indian, so you don't deserve the same rights that proper Indians do. And in other places, again, you find religious fundamentalism in many different forms that often manifests itself in violence. Nigeria is a terrible example of that, but it is certainly not the only one. And often you find these phenomena combined as well. In other words, we find massive threats to human flourishing and harmonious communities in our world today. And ultimately, we find in those things actually significant threats to our own security in this country as well. So a key message I had for the Foreign Office was if we care about these grave issues, things like drug crime, militant nationalism, religious fundamentalism, and authoritarian regimes, if we care about those things, we should certainly care about the persecution of Christians and about the systematic denial of freedom of religion or belief uh, more generally. And we need to address those issues. You know, the, the, this, this issue of persecution is ringing a bell loudly. Look at the world around, see what's going on, wake up and do something about it. So you see, we can no longer say, I believe that this, is a, this, this issue of Christian persecution is a sidebar issue that, you know, just a few religious people are interested in. These are huge issues that face us in the world today and they need to be addressed and they need to be acted on. And sadly, the COVID crisis has only made this situation worse. Weak governments have to give all their attention to managing the pandemic and turn a blind eye to whatever else may be going on. Authoritarian regimes use the situation to to accrue more power to themselves. Militant nationalists tend to blame minorities for the ills that are visited upon them. And religious fundamentalism uses the current crisis as a cloak for increased persecution. There are really sinister forces at work in our world today with many people suffering as a consequence, so the time for inaction and indifference is over. And that is basically what my review said, and that is what the recommendations which the government accepted in full commit the government to do, to take this issue seriously and to act upon it. And I believe that now more than ever, We must defend democracy and the freedoms it guarantees us, including freedom of religion or belief. It is needed now more than ever. It's not that democracy is perfect, but it it is so much better than the alternatives. And I think we must stand against all those who would betray and undermine these fundamental freedoms through violence, through crime, through militant nationalism, authoritarianism, through religious fundamentalism, and bigotry. We need to stand against that. And it matters, I think, hugely to the health and happiness of our world today that we should do that. And it matters hugely that we should defend those many people whose welfare, liberty, communities, families, and very lives are put at risk by those sinister, dark forces. And we should certainly stand by, with, and for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, wherever and whenever they face discrimination and persecution. So I hope that the the recommendations from my review will continue to make a really significant difference in the days to come. I was proud to present them to the Foreign Secretary, deeply honored that he commissioned me to do so, and I'm doing everything I can to make sure that they are actually delivered. In one of his first speeches to the House of Commons on the slave trade, William Wilberforce presented. Uh, Thomas Clarkson's monumental and harrowing report on the terrible evils of the slave trade to the House of Commons. It's a massive piece of work, much, much bigger than our review, I promise you. But as Wilberforce did that, he said this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. Well, we now know that this is a huge problem too, this terrible persecution that Christians and so many other people of faith face in the world today. So may we not look away, but may God give us grace instead to face up to this great challenge of our times, just as Wilberforce and others did in their day too. So let us make that our resolve. Amen. Very good. I think it's probably question time anyone got a question that they would like to ask and i'll, I'll do the roving mic thing in me wellies um, so i could pray i can pray uh, using open doors prayer booklet you know i i can support o- open doors a barnabas fund uh, what else can i do as just an ordinary christian uh, that hasn't got any political tremendous political clout um to assist Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think it's important to say we've all got political clout, actually. And um, I think one of the things that, the, yeah, I mean, absolutely use, I mean, do, do connect with the stuff that Open Doors are doing, because actually they're not just giving you prayer materials, they will be running campaigns. Um, Open Doors, uh, CSW, Release International, there are lots and lots of really good organizations. So yes, they want your prayers, but actually they will also want you to engage in their, in their campaigns. Um, if you, um, uh, you know, be in touch with your MP, just say that you, you heard me speak, if you like, and, and uh, you know, uh, would, would, would your MP like to comment on what they think the government's doing to, to implement the recommendations of my, of my review? One of the things you can do if you're on Twitter is to follow the APPG, the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Freedom of Religion or Belief, what, what happens quite often is that MPs stand up in the Commons and, and ask the government, uh, or they, they give written questions to the Foreign Office, and ask them what they're doing to implement this review or that, this, this um, recommendation or that recommendation or another one. That, of course, is all orchestrated in a plan, not by me, but by, by, by various people in, in Parliament. So if you pick up on those things, if you look at the recommendations of my review, christianpersecutionreview.org, and look through the back. If there's something in there that catches your interest, write to your MP and say, could you tell me what the government's doing to implement Bishop of Truro's recommendation number 21A or, what, or whatever it is. So be activists in it, you know, and, and engage your MP in, in these issues. They might not thank you for it. They might be very thankful, I don't know. It depends on their, on their stance. But, you know, we need, we, need to, we need to be activists. We need to use social media. We need to use the levers and the tools that we've got. And we're not without them, actually. Madam... sorry.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Bishop, for a very enlightening um, talk this afternoon. Um, Just one question, which is perhaps a little bit topical at the moment, but I wonder if you have anything to say on the um, current difficulties that migrants to uh, this country are are experiencing from a a Christian and a moral perspective.
1: Thank you. you. So the question was... um, did I have any comment about um, the current crisis, as far as uh, as far as migrants are concerned? Um, I think I think the first thing I want to say is I love the RNLI, and and anyone and everyone in Cornwall ought to love the RNLI. Don't diss the RNLI. You know anyone who is stupid enough to pick a fight with the RNLI for goodness' sake? Um, I, yeah, I think um, in fact. I'll let, I'll let you into a little secret. I was on a phone call this morning with uh, the Prime Minister's Special Envoy for Freedom of Religion or Belief, who's a wonderful Christian woman called Fiona Bruce MP. She does not present the Antiques Roadshow. She's the MP for Congleton. Great woman. I was on a call with her and a call with some some Foreign Office officials. Uh, And I I said, they didn't comment, and they wouldn't, uh, but I said it would be very interesting to do an analysis of those people who are coming in to the UK as migrants, risking their lives across the Channel, and working out what their ethnic and what their religious background is, and w- and what the overlap is with with persecution in the places that they're coming from. I know, for instance, there have been people who have been fleeing Eritrea, and Eritrea is a really, really difficult and uncomfortable place uh, to be to be a Christian. And I think I think actually that is that is one way I think of addressing what I think is some pretty harsh and uncomfortable rhetoric, political rhetoric around this, by saying, actually, you know, these are not just human beings. These are people who may well be suffering persecution uh, uh, of a sort that, that the UK government has taken has made a commitment to stand against. So, you know, there may well be a significant inconsistency there. But thank you for raising it. Really important point. I'm doing a lot of running around here. Normally in these things, you have a gopher, don't you? I'm, I'm self-gophering. I just thank you for what you've already done and it's amazing. Um, My question is about UK uh, expression. You can feel it right. Um, So the Scottish church took the Scottish government to court when COVID hit and said, you're not gonna stop us worshipping. If we went into another lockdown, do you think you would support the British church against the government stopping us from worshipping again? Thank you. That, that, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it does raise, I think, a broader issue. I mean, I, let, let me just comment on the first, the first part of that. I think, you know, I think one of the... I don't think there was ever any motivation in, in, in this country of what you might call a kind of... Uh, you know, there was no desire to be repressive towards the expression of faith, I think. In, in, in the in the saying, you know, we, we need to we need to shut our churches. Um, I mean I was I was uneasy about it, but you know, there was no blueprint really. We, we we had no previous experience to go on. Would we do the same again? I think almost certainly not. And and, and it it did for me begin to raise freedom of religion or belief issues, you know, that actually it is better that we make these decisions for, our, for ourselves. I know a lot of Americans, particularly with a, you know, different background in, in, in this whole thing, were very, very uneasy about it. But I also, I also want to just address a, a broader issue of how some of the issues in this country that, that, and there have been significant issues uh, people being told they can 't wear crosses at work and, and things like that how that relates to, to these the, these broader issues. so I, I think I want to say a few things about that. One is I think there has undoubtedly been some real silliness and, and stupidity in this country around issues like that oversensitivity, um, and we have to just say, look you know that 's that's, that's a little bit daft isn 't it? Um, I also think we need to be quite careful. About not about not saying that what people are experiencing in this country is of anything like the same scale or the same severity that people are facing elsewhere. And actually, I think I think the best way to address what is often, I think, um, silliness, uh, misunderstanding, religious illiteracy, intolerance in this country. Is to ensure that in this country we are as sensitive as we possibly can be to what's happening globally, because I think that you know, the, the more aware we are of persecution that other people are facing, we'll just say we're not going to go. What do I even Begin to go down that road in in, in this country. So I think being being um, global citizens are being globally sensitised to this issue. I hope will will address some of that um, intolerance and. And, and silliness that we've, we, we've seen in this country. That, that would at least be my hope. And I always think, actually, also, we're much better as Christians when we stand for the, for the rights and the needs of our neighbors rather than trying to be defensive for our, our own rights. I'm, I know you're not saying that, but you know, I, th- I think there's an important principle there. We need to speak out for our neighbors above all else.
0: Thanks. Um, so I like that I, that imagery you're saying about the two pronged attack, kind of attack, so to say. Sorry, I'll speak louder. I like that imagery that you're saying about the two pronged attack sort of thing with climate and then obviously religious freedom. Um, I think we can see clearly governmentally what actions are being taken for the climate crisis. Um, are you aware of what actions are being taken presently for uh, religious freedom within government? Um, and what would you like to see, and what do you think will actually happen, kind of actions-wise?
1: So, um, I mean, that, that was why I was on this, this call this morning, because um, one of the recommended, in fact, I'll tell you a little story. Um, so I, um, uh, I, I did this work on the review, and then I kind of breathed a huge sigh of relief. I think we went on holiday, and uh, I kind of, you know, it sort of slipped from my mind a little bit as I got stuck into, um, uh, business uh, here in, in Cornwall. And then a friend of mine said, oh, did you know that the Prime Minister's appointed a special envoy for freedom of religion or belief? I said, to, oh, no, oh well, that, that sounds great. That sounds a good idea. And then they said, you do remember that was one of your recommendations, don't you? <laughs> um, so it was great to see to see that happen. So Fiona Bruce MP is the Prime Minister's special envoy. One of the jobs that she has is to oversee the implementation of of, of the recommendations that I came up with. And they are quite, they're, they're, they're pretty far reaching actually, and they're, they're pretty broad. So, one of them, for instance, is, the, is that the UK should um, put a resolution to the UN Security Council calling for the protection of Christian and other minorities in the Middle East. Now, if, if we can get that through the Security Council, and that's really tricky. Diplomatically, But if we can get that through, that will be the first time ever since the United Nations have been established that any recommendation on freedom of religion or belief, uh, any resolution has been passed by the Security Council on, on that subject. So th- that will be a kind of game-changing um, kind of thing. So, um, you know, th- there there is a lot that the government has committed itself to do, um, and there are a lot of MPs and a lot of people, more generally, who are really keen to see the government stick to that and, and, and keep their word in it. Um, the, the, the last, the, tw- the 22nd of the 22 recommendations uh, was that the implementation of those recommendations should be reviewed three years on from the publication of my review. So, you know, the clock is ticking on that, and there will be an independent review review of that. Um, so it's, it's kind of... Um, you know, holding, holding the government's nose to the grindstone on it, actually to implement it. But it is, you know, it is kind of far-reaching stuff. It's not a tick-box tick exercise. It is about a change of mind and heart and, and culture. So one of the things, the first recommendation is that the Foreign Office needs to have a a proper framework of values by which it operates, that freedom of religion and belief should be embedded in that, that there should be a a diplomatic code. We have civil service code, a ministerial code, that I think there ought to be a diplomatic code that says, you know, this is not an optional thing for diplomats to be concerned about. They need to be committed to delivering uh, on this. So, you know, uh, the clock's ticking. there, there, There is a mechanism in there to hold government to account for, uh, for, for, for it all. But, I, I, you know, come back to the first question. We, we need to continue to be activists and, uh, and, and engaged in this issue and, you know, use what, whatever voice we have. Maybe, I don't know what, I have no idea what the time is. 10 to, so we've got, we've got time for a couple more questions. If you have, otherwise you might just want to go and hear the band or whatever's going on. I just wonder your thoughts on the impact and the influence the UK government has on the global stage with the rise of China, especially with trade links, and we are a much more you know, geopolitical world we live in. Do we as a nation have as much sway as we'd like to think when we put forward these recommendations? Um, that's a very good question. Um, first of all, there is... Um, there's quite, a, there's quite a growing um, international concern around this issue. So there is, I can't, I can't I'm afraid, remember what, what its name is, but there is a coalition of nations. The, I think it's the International Religious Freedom Alliance um, group of nations that have kind of committed to make common cause uh, on this. Um, there is, uh, next summer, there's going to be a ministerial conference in London on it. There was one three years ago in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Americans are quite keen that, that we should host it this time and that's a way of gathering people globally together who are committed to this and to, to keep it on the agenda and, and to keep the pressure up. Um, but I, 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 think, I think your question is a, is a really good one. I, I don't think there's, you know, the UK alone can have some influence but not as much as it, as, as perhaps it might like to think, um, you know, if I'm honest with you. Uh, I was reading on the, my phone earlier on about the um, UK um, aircraft carrier fleet that's sailing through the South China seas at the moment and, you know, sort of we're puffing our chests and beating our chests a little bit and, you know, in, the fa- in the face of the Chinese. But actually, you know, the best way that the UK can influence the world globally is through diplomacy, it is through the exercise of soft power one of the things I find really, really frustrating is on the one hand, we're saying we need to be advocates for international religious freedom, freedom of religion and belief, and yet at the same time, we cut the aid budget. You know, and, and, and try, trying to do the one whilst you do the other simply makes that one much harder. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm really unhappy about that. So, it, it, you know, it's soft power that counts. It's soft power that the UK historically have, have influenced being a trusted partner that the UK um, has been particularly good at. I, you know, I just don't believe we can go back to the old days of sending in a gunship a gun because other, other, other countries have bigger gunships these days. But great question. Thank you. One more, maybe, if there is one. Otherwise, you can go and get a cup of tea. Rasheen, hi. You
0: often hear that the persecuted church is the growing church. First of all, is that true?
1: And secondly, could we do with a bit of persecution in this country? Um, hmm. I don't think, I, I genuinely don't think persecution is, is ever anything that we should, uh, we should invite on ourselves. You know, I think our call fundamentally is to be faithful to Jesus. And if if our faithfulness in discipleship leads us into persecution then, uh, then 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 so be it. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think, I think you know actually persecution has I think you can argue that historically that persecution has been the normative state of the church, and Christendom and you know settled state Christianity has been, has been the exception to that and it is certainly true that the places in the world today where the church is growing most are the, are the places where it is where it is harder and it has faced more opposition, I would definitely say, um, comfortable living is no particular spur to effective Christian discipleship or church growth. So you know, let's be a little bit more uncomfortable. Strangers and aliens. I'm going to um, I'm going to close uh, by leading us in in prayer. Let's let's pray together. Lord, we want to say, um, Jesus is Lord unequivocally, we recognize you as Lord of our lives, as Lord of the church, and as Lord of this world. And Lord, we, we thank you for our brothers and sisters the world over who proclaim fearlessly that, that Jesus is Lord, even when that is uh, frowned upon, even when they are uh, punished and under pressure uh, and persecuted and discriminated against, and maybe even lose their lives for making, uh, making that claim. Lord, we pray that you will strengthen them, that you will strengthen them in their ministry, in their witness, in their service. We pray that you will strengthen us to stand by them, to learn from them, uh, to to honor them. We pray that you will help us to be as active as we are able to be, to use such voice and influence and pressure as we can bring to bear uh, uh, on on this subject. And Lord... uh, make us, we pray, whatever may come, uh, worthy of suffering for our faith and and standing for you um, in the days to come. Uh, And Lord, we make this our prayer in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much.